0: We began last Lord's Day to look at the doctrine of preparation for the Lord's Supper. Something that we as a congregation, together with Scripture and the history of Reformed Churches, has led great stress and emphasis upon. And I trust that it's good for us to look at this, particularly in context of our coming to the Lord's Supper uh, next week, God willing. We began by saying that we're fighting against an attitude that uh, is alive and kicking in an instant culture where we want everything immediately. And when we bring that into the church, we've become more prone to careless worship. We don't consider that to spiritually profit, we must carefully prepare for the Lord's ordinances. And that gives a little context to what I said before we began to worship this morning. If we come carelessly, if we make no, no preparation, we can't expect to profit. And so we began with that general principle, preparation to meet with God. And demonstrated that this has been a principle that uh, was characteristic of true religion, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so God's people were to prepare for the Sabbath day. They were to prepare for worship in general. The day before the Sabbath was called the day of preparation. So that the the Jew could put things aside and leave himself free for the public and private worship of God. Then we went on beyond the general principle to consider specific preparation for particular ordinances. And we were thinking about the Passover in the Old Testament where the people had to get the leaven out of the house and then set the lamb apart that was to be their sacrifice. And then moving from that to the Lord's Supper in the New Testament and how that was prepared for in its first observance because it followed on from the Passover meal. And having considered all that, we came to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and following. And we return there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 and following. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily The Apostle Paul is telling the church in Corinth that the Lord has kindly appointed a New Testament covenant meal. And in this, Jesus Christ comes by the Holy Spirit to meet with us and to seal his covenant with us. To feed our souls and strengthen us. And Paul is saying, because of that, you must not come to the table of the Lord casually. You must not come to the table of the Lord carelessly. Carelessly so moving on this morning from the principles that we looked at last week that we should prepare, I want to give us some motivations and likewise some practical counsel as to how we should prepare for the Lord's Supper. So last time was principles of preparation for the Lord's Supper. This morning, the practice of preparation for the Lord's Supper. First of all, let's consider some motives to help you. I want to offer reasons why you should prepare for the Lord's Supper. The first is, Christ commands it. That should be sufficient motive enough for a Christian. Christ, the great king and head of the church, commands it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he commands us to observe this ordinance. This do in remembrance of me. And therefore, we must keep the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. But he adds to that command a specific exhortation in verse 28. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Something additional. It's not just this do in remembrance of me. It's also examine yourself before you do this. In remembrance of me. Let a man examine himself. Now before we admit people to the table of the Lord, the elders of the congregation examine that person. Because Christ has put the preaching of the word and the administration of the ordinances under the care of his church government. And so the elders admit or the elders may bar people from the table of the Lord. They examine candidates. But Paul goes beyond that. Not only are you to be examined by the elders of the church, he says you are to examine yourself. Because ultimately the elders can examine what you say and what they see. But they don't know your heart. You are the only person who knows your heart. Isn't it interesting that we are so quick to examine other people? We are so quick to judge them. We do it all the time. We look at people's lives. We evaluate. We share our opinion of them. We maybe do it in the church, or perhaps you do it at home. You talk about a particular person in church. You talk about their strengths, or you talk about their weaknesses, their inconsistencies. We're so quick to examine other people, but we're not so quick to examine ourselves. The word that Paul uses here means to put yourself on trial or to test yourself. He's referring to a careful examination, not a quick once over a glance at your life. No, the way a goldsmith will try the metal in order to determine its purity, he'll put it into the fire, then he'll beat it with hammers. Paul uses a word like that and he says, put yourself to the test. In other words, you were to make a strict inquiry and pass a judgment concerning the state of your soul. Are you a Christian or are you not a Christian? That's the first question. And then having established that, you're examining your life to determine not just the state or your standing before God, but the health of your Christian profession. Are you healthy as a Christian? Are you growing in grace? Is there sin in your life that you haven't dealt with? And you take your life openly and honestly, and you set it before the word of the Lord, and you put yourself on trial. So just as the Old Testament commanded the Jew to remove leaven at the time of the Passover. And just as it was the duty of Israel to prepare for two days before they met God at Mount Sinai. Here the Apostle Paul says it is a requirement to examine yourself. And not to do so is more than merely to be remiss. It's actually to be in rebellion. Against the commandment of Christ. You examine yourself because Christ commands it. The second motivation is you examine yourself because you commune with him. You commune with him. These calls to self-examination with the warnings come in verse 27 through verse 32. Paul is saying you can drink and eat unworthily. But the goal is to do the opposite, isn't it? The goal is that you might come and eat and drink worthily, or another way to say it is to do so reverently. But you see, Paul, he puts these calls to self-examination after he has given us the words of institution that Jesus has appointed. So he's saying, this is what the Lord's Supper is, Now, this is how you are to prepare for the Lord's Supper. Well, what does he say in these words of institution? He says, Jesus took bread, he broke it. He says, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Then he takes the cup and he says, this is the New Testament in my blood. Drink it and remember my death. Jesus appoints the ordinance for your benefit. Jesus appoints the ordinance for your benefit. Then he comes and says, make sure you don't abuse it. If you do abuse it, there are consequences for that abuse. Okay, we'll look at that in a moment. But brethren, can't you see here that you should strive for worthy participation in the first place because there is blessing for you to receive here. Now you might tremble at the consequences and the threats, but surely our hearts ought to be moved by the fact that Jesus has given us this ordinance to bless us. Paul says Jesus appointed it in the night in which he was betrayed. Preparing himself for the cross. You can imagine all the things that were in Jesus' mind. His hour had come. He's going out to the garden where he'll wrestle with God and sweat drops of blood. From there he'll go to the kangaroo court and ultimately to the cross of Calvary. He'll suffer at the hands of men and he'll drink the cup of wrath that the Father puts to his lips. He'll cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, for our salvation. But before he does that, he sits down with his disciples and he says, I'm leaving something you. I'm giving you this ordinance that you can use when I'm gone for your blessing. Take this bread and eat it. Drink this cup and drink it. And as you do, chapter 10, verse 16, what is the cup of blessing which we bless? Is it not the participation, the fellowship, the sharing in the blood of Jesus Christ? And this bread that we break, is it not the sharing, participation, fellowship, communion in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ? Brethren, we've seen that this is no ordinary feast. But he who is king of kings and lord of all lords invites us to the table and makes himself the feast for our souls. William Bradshaw comments, this is a mystery to be trembled at. Can there be a greater mystery delivered to us? And is it not therefore a brutish sin that we should rush? Upon the scene. You prepare because Christ commands it, you prepare because you commune with him. But then the third motive is that you prepare because there are consequences. You don't just rob yourself of blessing if you feel to examine yourself. But more than that, Paul says a number of things. Verse 27, wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, mark this, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He goes further to say that if we eat and drink in this way, we drink damnation unto ourselves. Look there at verse uh, 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The next verse, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if ye would judge yourselves, if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Guilty of the body and blood of Christ, Drinking judgment to yourself. Being chastened. And then Paul says, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you. And others are dead. Others sleep. Well, all these things are connected. That is judgment for partaking unworthily. Because to do so makes you guilty Of the body and blood of Christ. We need to stop here for a moment this morning. And ponder what Paul just said. That to eat and drink unworthily. Makes you guilty of the body and blood of Christ. In other words. It is to offer such a disgrace to Christ. And his sufferings and death. To become like those who mocked him. To become like those. Roman soldiers who dressed him up like a carnival king. And spat in his face. And beat him with a rod. And pressed a crown of thorns upon his head. To be like those who took him to a cross and nailed him. And to be like those who stood around the cross. Gnashing their teeth. And ridiculing the Son of God. That's the strength of these words. You become guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Yet people come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper so lightly. This morning you need to understand two things. First of all, there is damnation to unbelievers in this sacrament. There is damnation to unbelievers in this sacrament. Therefore, if you are not a Christian, in God's name I plead with you, stay away from the table of the Lord. Don't come near it. Because all this ordinance can do for you is increase your guilt and condemnation before God. That's why we take it seriously. That's why we interview people before we allow them to come to the Lord's table. We're not being mean. We're being kind. Churches hand out the table of the Lord in such a careless manner as if it has no consequence for any. And we shouldn't wonder at that because Satan knows that those who eat and drink this cup unworthily Drink damnation unto themselves. So he's quite happy for people to come and abuse the ordinance to the destruction of their own souls. There's damnation to the unbeliever in this sacrament. This cup of blessing becomes a cup of damnation. But then there is damnation to believers in this sacrament. You say that's very strong language, and it is, but Paul uses it to the church here in Corinth. There isn't damnation to the believer the same way there is to the unbeliever, because of course the believer cannot be cast into hell. But you can be judged, and you can receive the chastening of the Lord for your sin of careless participation. In the Lord's Supper. That's Paul's point here. He says, examine yourself because you can be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. You can act as though these things were despicable to you. He says, if you don't come, you'll drink damnation to yourself. If you don't judge yourselves, you are going to be judged. And the evidence of it, he says, is apparent in notable signs in Corinth. Some of you are weak, some of you are sickly, and some of you have died. Do you get the point? If you don't examine and judge yourself before you come to the table, the Lord is going to judge and chasten you for coming to the table. So those wonderful words of chapter 10, this cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? An unspeakable mystery, a wonderful blessing for God's people. But Paul now comes and he says that cup of blessing can become a cup of sickness and death to believers. One of the Puritans says this, God may not send a saint to hell for this sin, but he may take him to hospital or to the grave for it. And yet there's a mercy in that. It's severe. God says, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to chasten you if you deal with this in an irreverent manner. But do you see what he says there in verse 32 at the end? But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. It's a mercy if when we mishandle the ordinance of the Lord, he chastens us so that we learn and we're sanctified and not utterly condemned. So why do we call for preparation? Christ commands it. We commune with him and there's great blessing, but there are also fearful and stated consequences For our abuse of the table of the Lord. Well secondly that moves us on to practice of preparation. The word examine and the word later in this portion judge. Point to the same thing. That strict inquiry into the state of our soul. And the health of our Christian profession. Short of Catechism question and answer 97 asks. What is required to the worthy receiving of the Lord's Supper? And it answers, It is required of them that would worthily receive the Lord's Supper that they examine themselves of their knowledge to discern the Lord's body, of their faith to feed upon him, of their repentance, love, and new obedience, lest, coming unworthily, they eat and drink judgment to themselves. So you have this in your shorter catechism. You want to know how to prepare for the Lord's Supper. There are five things that you ought to examine yourself for. The first thing is knowledge to discern the Lord's body. Paul points that out in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So a big problem in Corinth was ignorance. Ignorance of the gospel in the Lord's supper. And that means that coming to the Lord's Supper requires enough knowledge for you to see Christ and the gospel in the elements. The first thing you need to know is yourself. You need to have a knowledge of yourself as a sinner. You see, this is not a table for perfect people, this is a table for sinners. And they're going to that table to confess that they need the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, you can't come to the table of the Lord if you don't know that need. If you do not know that you have a need of salvation because you're born in sin. And as a lawbreaker, you're condemned to a threefold death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Adam sinned and he died. He died physically at the end of his life. He died spiritually the moment that he sinned. And if he had not believed the gospel, he would have died eternally the second death as a punishment for his sins. You need to know these things. You need to know that you're a sinner condemned to a threefold death. You need to see sin as the plague of plagues in this world. And understand that you have no power whatsoever to cure yourself, to merit God's favor, or to remove your guilt. Do you know that this morning? Then you need to have a proper knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and work. I don't say that you need a theological degree. You don't. But you need to be able to see in the elements Jesus Christ as the incarnate God who comes into this world to save us by a perfectly holy life and a sacrificial and atoning death. You need knowledge to discern the Lord's body. When the minister says, this is my body, which is broken for you, and he breaks bread, you recognize that to be Christ's life given for us to all of his sufferings and death. When he says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you, you understand that that blood must be the atonement for your soul. That you must be cleansed from your sin in the blood of Jesus, or you will forever have that stain of guilt before God. So you must know yourself, your need as a sinner. You must have a proper knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so as to see him in his person and work in the elements of the Lord's Supper. And then you need to have some knowledge of God's covenant. Now, I don't say that you have to have read all the 17th century works on covenant theology or anything additional to that in the Dutch tradition, etc., etc. But I say you need to have some knowledge of God's covenant. Why? Because the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of God's covenant. How else can you understand the words of verse 25 here? After the same manner, also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, Listen, listen. This is the New Testament or this is the new covenant in my blood. You need to be able to understand that. That this is the only way that the eternal God will be our God. (coughs) This is the only way that we will be his people on the ground of the sacrifice of his son. And in Christ, we are brought into everlasting covenant communion with God. Which is what we're doing at the table. We're having that communion. He's saying to us, I am your God. We're saying to him, we are your people. And he's stamping the relationship with a seal. Testifying to this bond of love. Do you know these things? Do you know your need as a sinner? Do you know the person and work of Jesus Christ as a Savior? Do you have some knowledge of this covenant, this everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, that God establishes with sinners through Jesus Christ? You need knowledge to discern the Lord's body. You should be asking yourself, do I have that knowledge? Secondly, you need faith. Feed upon him. Coming to the Lord's Supper is not an automatic benefit. In other words, you don't simply come and eat Jesus with your mouth. That's why non Christians ought not to come to the table of the Lord, because you have no right to come to the Lord's Supper. Without faith. Indeed, you're not a Christian if you don't have faith. But nor can you, even as a Christian, rightly benefit from the Lord's Supper unless you have an active faith in Christ. So, what is faith? What is faith? Well, the first thing we can say here is faith builds on knowledge. It's not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. Faith builds upon knowledge and the foundation of it is the truth of the gospel revealed in God's word. So you believe everything God says in the Bible. You believe what God says about himself, who he is, eternal, infinite, unchangeable. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you believe what God says about you, that you're a sinner. You believe the doctrine of the fall. You believe the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The foundation of your faith is what God has revealed in the Word. But then the specific object of your faith is Christ. Christ whom God has revealed in the world. Now, we've said a moment ago that you need knowledge. And that knowledge is that you have to have a proper understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and his work. But knowledge is not faith. You need more than knowledge. Many of you here today might have knowledge of the things that we've spoken about, but faith involves a response to that knowledge whereby you receive Jesus Christ and rest upon him as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. That would be the definition of faith. You receive Jesus Christ and you rest upon him as he is freely offered to you in the gospel. Well, you say, what does that look like in my life? How do I know that I have it? How do, the, how do I know that I believed? Remember, we're examining ourselves, we're testing, do we have these things? Well, it looks something like this. Despairing of your own righteousness, you abandon all of your own works and all of your false hopes, and at the same time, you abandon yourself with heart reliance to Jesus Christ. Can you understand that? You abandon all of your works, you abandon all of your false hopes, And then you abandon yourself to Jesus Christ alone as a savior. And you rely upon him for everything. You take him to be yours and you trust in him. Now what you're looking for when you examine your heart may not always feel very strong. It may not always be an assured faith. And the Lord's people struggle with that. Let me take you to John chapter 6 and suggest that if you're looking for faith and you're still trying to find it, you're wondering, am I really a Christian? Do I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? You'll find it here. John chapter 6, verse 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? Now we're looking for faith. And you're wondering, Do I have it? If I have it, it's not very strong. I don't have a sense of assurance of faith. Well, here's Jesus' question to you this morning. Will you go away? Will you leave me? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art that Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you see what Peter says? We believe and are sure that you are Christ. You are the Son of the living God. I'm sure about the doctrines of the gospel, but I'm asking you a further question, aren't I? You may be sure of those things. Your question is, am I sure that I believe those things? My question is, will you go away? Will you go away? Or will you, with weak faith, die at the feet of Jesus Christ? Will you abandon everything else because there's nothing else for you? And will you abandon yourself to Jesus? You say, well, I'll do that. That's my only hope. That's faith, brethren. That's faith. That's what you're looking for when you examine yourself. Not the strongest faith in the world ever. Though it would be wonderful if we had it. But the faith that will give itself up in total abandonment to Jesus Christ that faith that forsakes all and rests upon Jesus Christ then comes and feeds upon Jesus Christ in the Lord's supper and so that faith becomes the eye of the soul by which you see him in the elements And that faith becomes the hand of the soul as you reach out to take him in the elements. And that faith becomes the mouth of the soul as you feast upon Jesus Christ in the elements. You need knowledge and you need faith. The third thing is you need repentance. Repentance is inseparable from faith, but we must distinguish it from faith. You must trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as a Savior from sin, surely that implies that you're mourning over and you're turning from that sin. So repentance and faith are in in some ways the different side of the same coin. Remember Isaiah chapter 55, which is preached to call us forth to believe. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. We're to believe, we're to come. The prophet goes on, verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Faith is a repenting faith. Repentance is a believing repentance. It's godly sorrow that works repentance not to be repented of. What then are some of the features of repentance? Well, the first is that repentance is self-condemnatory. Repentance is self-condemnatory. It's a sinner looking at the law of God and owning that what God says about him is true, and therefore accepting the just punishment of God and condemning himself. Do you ever do that, even as a Christian? Do you ever get to the end of a day? Do you ever get to the end of a week and you condemn yourself before God? You've looked into the law. The law is right. You see your sin. And you say, God's judgment and justice is right. Paul says, if you don't judge yourselves, God will judge you. Repentance is self-condemnatory. Secondly, repentance hates all sin. Repentance hates all sin because it is sin against God. Though our sins have consequences for other people, there are horizontal implications to our sin. The chief, of our fi- chief offense of our sin is vertical. Psalm 51, against thee, the only, have I sinned, says David. Even though he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and Israel. He's taken up with the thought that his sin is against God. God is the chief offended party in my sin. Well, because of that, all of your sins concern you. You know, you can hide your sins from others and they don't know anything about them. They're, they're relatively unaffected by them. But when you see your sins before God, then it's not just the big sins that are going to concern you. It is going to be the smaller sins, the hidden sins that concern you as well. And if truth be told, there are no small sins. Why? Because every sin is an offense against an infinitely holy God. Repentance hates all sin. Do you hate all your sin? Are there or are there some sins in your life that are pets that you bring in and you stroke and you play with and the other ones you keep outside? Repentance is also heightened by the cross. Sometimes we think that repentance is heightened by the law. Repentance is informed by the law. Repentance is deepened by the cross. Why? Because while on the one hand the cross is the answer to our sin, on the other hand the cross aggravates our sin. Because we look upon the sacrifice of Christ and understand that he suffers because of those sins. Remember Zechariah chapter 12. That I'm going to pour out the spirit of grace and supplication on my people, says the Lord. What are they going to do? They're going to come in repentance before me. They're going to look upon him whom they have pierced. And they're going to mourn for him as one does mourn for her only son. What's happening? They're led by the spirit to see the consequence of their sin in the crucifixion of Christ. And that is what's driving them to mourn. The law informs. The gospel deepens. So examine your heart for evidence of repentance. Does my sin trouble me as an offense against God? Does my sin trouble me more when I, when I consider the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does the cross not only draw me as a sinner to Jesus, but does the cross drive me away from my sin because I see the ugliness of my sin? And that's why repentance is particularly needed in coming to the Lord's Supper to avoid careless participation. Because if you're willing to come to the table of the Lord without dealing with your sin, what are you doing? You're bringing Christ murderers to the table. You're bringing sins that are eaters and abettors in the damnation of Jesus to the table of the Lord. No wonder Paul says, be careful. You can be guilty of the body and blood of Christ. Fourthly, love. You're looking for love. Love is the principle of communion. Jesus loves and comes to us. We love and come to him. When you look into your heart for love, you're looking for something that is affectionate, The gospel affects you, wins your heart, draws you to Christ. It's not as if you look and say, well, that's, I understand the scheme of the gospel. It makes sense to me. And you commit to it like a business transaction. No, the Christian sees it, understands it, loves it. Loves Jesus Christ for who he is and what he's done. So it's affectionate. It's more keenly felt by some than others. That can be due to spiritual issues. It can be due to personality makeup. And it can be more keenly felt at one time or another in the Christian life. So I'm not asking you today, is your love so passionate, you know, that you're overwhelmed by Christ 24-7, you know, every day of the week. I'm not asking you that question. When you look in and you search for love, if you see it, you're going to very likely depreciate it. I'm asking you, is there any love for Christ? Is there any love for Christ? You're also looking for something that's practical. Jesus lays stress on this. He who loves me keeps my commandments. So yes, we should feel, but sometimes if we're not understanding that feeling, how can we determine whether or not we love Jesus Christ? Well, you look for the actions of love. Love fulfills the law. You don't always have a gushy, sticky feeling towards your husband or wife, do you? But yet you love them. And they know you love them. Why? Because you do things for them. So if you look for the affection and you're discouraged, look at your life and see, is there evidence that I love God's word and I read it? That I love God's church and I want to be there? That I love God's law and I want to obey it? Does my love motivate my willing Christian service? You're looking for love for Christ in your life. And then the final aspect here is new obedience. You're looking for new obedience, which really follows on from the previous two marks. We've spoken about love, and we said that if we love Christ, we keep his commandments. Well, then that's going to be seen, isn't it, in new obedience. We want to do what the Lord says. Our hearts are disinclined to sin, and they are inclined to Obedience. And so the believer comes who loves Jesus and says, I want to know what the will of Christ is in order that I might do it. But then new obedience is also related to repentance, isn't it? Why? Because when you repent, you're forsaking your sin on the one hand, but it's not like you move from here to the middle, you move from here to hear. You're forsaking sin on the one hand with a purpose to new obedience on the other. Let him that stole steal no more, let him work. Let the liar stop lying, let him tell the truth. Let the adulterous husband or wife, those who are given to adulterous thoughts in their heart, doesn't just say, well, stop having those adulterous thoughts and whatever in your heart. There's a positive side. Go and love your husband. Go and love your wife. It's a purpose of new obedience. Well, here's the Lord's Supper, which is an opportunity for this because it's a covenant renewal meal. Where the Lord Jesus is coming to bind himself to you. And likewise, you are coming to bind yourself to him. You're remembering all the promises that Jesus has made to you, and you're feeding upon them. But at the same time, you're remembering all the promises and all of the vows that you've made to him. Like a wife and a husband who are married at one point in their marriage, remembering the vows and renewing them before witnesses. Where has my love been low? Where has my faithfulness been deficient? We're examining our hearts for these things. Where are all the areas that I have come short? And then we're recommitting to the Lord at his table. So we have these three motives and then these five aspects of the practice for communion preparation. I trust that you you see up to this point that this is something that we ought to be very careful over. That we're examining ourselves before we come to the table. But that brings us finally to the purpose of preparation. The purpose of preparation. Jesus says, examine yourself. But he doesn't stop there. He's already said, this do in remembrance of me. Thus, the command. But even when he says, let a man examine himself, he says, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. What's the purpose then of self-examination? The purpose is to come. And sometimes we get this terribly mixed up because it's although we hear the command and we're, Sensitive to the threats that the Lord puts here. And we examine our hearts for reasons not to come. Did you ever find that? That you're looking for your sins. You're looking for your graces. And you're telling yourself, oh, they're they're just so terrible. How can I come to the table of the Lord? Well, Well, Paul says the purpose of this is in order to come. And so as we work to a close this morning, this is really a challenge and a word to all of you today. Whoever you are, whatever the state of your soul is, you are to examine yourself. And whatever you find in your heart that may keep you from the table of the Lord, the symbolism of the Lord's table is the answer to that problem. The symbolism of the Lord's table... Christ and Him crucified is the answer to whatever problem you find within your heart today. So maybe you look into your heart and you say, Well, I am clearly not a Christian. What are you going to do about it? As I said earlier, you must not come to the table of the Lord, you must stay away. But that is not to see Him. As me saying, well, just say, I'm not a Christian. Sit down, shrug your shoulders and do nothing about it. If you look into your heart today and you say, well, I'm I'm not a Christian, you must repent and believe the gospel. Not repenting and believing the gospel disqualifies you from coming to the table of the Lord. But it does not excuse your absence. It does not excuse your absence. Because your lack of repentance and your lack of faith is sin. Therefore, you're to deal with your impenitent heart. And you're to believe the gospel as it's offered to you this morning. And in the future, you're to come to the table of the Lord. Or what about if you're a Christian and you see sin in your life? What do you expect to see? What do you expect to see? So you're going to see sin in your life. That's fact. But what sin will you find in your life that if you repent of that sin, Jesus will not forgive? The elements of the Lord's Supper are the answer, aren't they? And what sin is there to your soul that is so sweet that you would not forsake it for Christ? Brethren, you are not examining yourself with the expectation of finding no sin. You are going to find sin. If you don't, you have an even bigger problem than you think. But when you find that sin... You go to Jesus Christ for mercy and you deal with that sin because worthy participation at the Lord's Supper is not worthiness in ourselves to come. Our worthiness is Christ. The five things that we're looking at are not merit for us to come. They're evidences of grace. So if you're a Christian and you see sin in your life you deal with it you come to the table of the Lord but what if you're one and you lack assurance and so you fear to make a profession of Christ or on the other hand you're a Christian who's lost assurance and you look into your heart and everything that you see there is weak and discouraging You say, how can I be a Christian? If I'm a Christian at all, I'm a poor Christian. My love is so low. My faith is so weak. These things are like little embers. Yes, but is Christ your only hope? And will you go away? Our forefathers were very wise. Question and answer 172 of the larger catechism. May one who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation come to the Lord's Supper. One who doubts of his being in Christ or his due preparation to the Lord's, uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper may have true interest in Christ, though he be not yet assured thereof. And in God's account, He has it, if he be duly affected with the apprehension of the lack of it. And unfeelingly desires to be found in Christ and to depart from iniquity. In which case, because promises are made and the sacrament is appointed for the relief even of weak and doubting Christians, he is to bewail his unbelief and labor to have his doubts resolved. And so doing, he may and ought to come to the Lord's Supper that he may be further strengthened. I love that as a Christian. I love it as a pastor. You look in and you're going to see sin. Deal with your sin. You look in and you're going to see weak graces. Weak love. Weak faith. Yet none of those graces are the ground of your acceptance before God. None of them are your title to the table. Christ is. And a weak faith that lays hold of a strong Christ. Even though it's trembling. Receives the whole Christ. And in him an everlasting salvation. And it doesn't matter how long you gaze at weak faith or you stare at weak love. Weak faith and weak love are not going to get any stronger by you studying their weakness. You take those weak graces to the table of the Lord and you feed upon Christ. And Christ will strengthen your weak faith. And Christ will fuel fuel your weak love. The smoking flax will he not quench. The bruised reed will he not break. Looking in, brethren, in scripture is always designed ultimately to drive you out of yourself to Jesus Christ. With this in mind, please don't just fear coming to the Lord's table when you shouldn't. You need to fear coming, or you need to fear not coming to the Lord's table when you should. So then we've looked at motives and they're serious. We need to deal with this matter carefully. We've looked at the practice, what are we looking for? But the purpose is that we deal with our sins, we come to Christ. Let a man examine himself and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Let's stand for prayer.